Congratulations! You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Tēnā koutou, ko Eileen tēnē. Last week, I sat down with the Green Party's Chloe Swarbrick, MP for the Auckland Central Electorate, to chat employment, housing and more. Yarn about. There's been a lot of stuff about maximum employment hmm. in the um, in the news lately. Is there such a thing as maximum sustainable employment? <laughs> uh, so it's probably worthwhile outlining how we got to this point and how that's defined in legislation. So uh, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, our central bank, has a law that governs its mandate. That is the things that it's supposed to do. Uh, prior to the last term of Parliament, its sole mandate was something called financial stability, which basically is to try and make sure by using monetary policy levers like the official cash rate, debt-to-income ratios and other levers that they have control over uh, to basically ensure that there isn't this massive crash or transfer of wealth in any particular, typically, downward trajectory. Uh, so uh, that was their mandate prior to the last term where maximum sustainable employment was put in, obviously, with the three different parties in Parliament, meaning that the Reserve Bank uh, wasn't solely to look after, you know, kind of the stability, for lack of a better term, of where wealth and income was, but also to ensure that at the very least people were being employed. Uh, technically, therefore, the Reserve Bank can justify under its COVID-19 response, even though uh, that large-scale asset purchasing program or unconventional monetary policy increased inequality, as its own advice said to the government at the beginning of 2020, it would. Uh, they can justify that it was meeting the mandate of maximum sustainable employment and financial stability, albeit increasing inequality in this country, particularly through the housing market. Mm-hmm. So uh, to kind of unpack maximum sustainable employment, um, that is, again, a term that is very loaded and has a whole lot of connotations, uh, but it basically is trying to get to a point where we have as many people as possible employed in this country. Uh, What you're potentially alluding to in that question is a statement that was made in, I believe, in RNZ, or it might even have been a newsroom article by the Employers uh, and Manufacturers Association a few days ago, where the spokesperson on behalf of that uh, representative body stated that we needed more people to be unemployed because uh, that would mean that they would be able to pay less. Uh, pay people less to do certain jobs. Uh, they also, in that same breath, stated that they believe that about 2 to 3% of the population is supposedly unemployable. So I think when you're starting from a position of that as the kind of respect that you are giving to potential employees, things are not particularly great. Uh, so yeah, I, I had a bit of a pop at that statement on Twitter as I think a lot of other people on kind of the left of politics did because, you know, this is the kind of uh, untold bit of, or the, the unpacked uh, bit of the kind of late capitalist dream, right, is that these are the same people who are saying that we can't increase the minimum wage because we are not, we're going to see unemployment go up the minimum wage has gone up and now they're calling for more people to be unemployed. Mm-hmm. So I think at the end of the day there has to be some kind of admission that they don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to economics and they therefore you know, can take that kind of uh, self-appointed throne of uh, superiority in that uh, economic realm uh, for having passed its use by date. 
this kind of thinking, what is its tangible outcome for particularly part-time and casual workers? That's the way a lot of students work. Mm. A lot of students who work are working multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. What is the impact of this kind of thinking mm. that not everyone can be employed mm. um, on those workers whose work is not full-time and not permanent, not guaranteed? I think uh, the impact, the cultural impact of this kind of thinking is uh, that it sees employees or those who could be employees as effectively, you know, very literally a human resource to exploit. Uh, and that doesn't foster particularly beneficial, healthy or meaningful relationships between employers or employees. And just to really, again, give you another example of how insidious this way of thinking is, uh, I sat on the Education Workforce Select Committee in the last term of Parliament when we were repealing the 90-day trials. It didn't go as far as the Greens wanted it to, which was to get rid of them entirely. There was a threshold that was imposed around 20 employees, which was by virtue of New Zealand First at that point in time still sitting around the government table. Um, we had the likes of the EMA, the Employment and Manufacturers Association, come forward and say, oh, these 90-day trials are, are really good. You know, this, these fire at will clauses are really important because they enable us to take uh, chances on people that we otherwise wouldn't. So I gave them the hypothetical of you've got, you know, two people who you're interviewing for a job, employee A and employee B, or interviewee A and B. And both of them are, you know, effectively of exactly the same skill set. Uh, they have exactly the same experience, but one of them has potentially a conviction or something else that you would consider as supposedly potentially detrimental inside of, you know, a very narrow view of the kind of experience that people can bring to the table and the value inherent thereof. And... Uh, which one of those two people would you employ? <laughs> you're telling me that you know you would take opportunities with people, but ultimately you're always still going to choose the person who you think is going to do the job the best and who has, in your view, the lesser of the bad things that you don't want to happen. So really this actually doesn't play out. It is not meaningfully impacting how you are choosing to make employment decisions, and they had to agree to that effect. But, you know, it, it basically is, again, this cultural setting that uh, and rhetoric which informs the kind of debate that we are having around the kind of economy that we should accept. Uh, the economy, by the way, being something entirely man-made. It is all of us and the things that we create and the transactions that we have, uh, and therefore the kinds of policy settings which we accept and the kinds of things that our politicians are allowed to do or not do. Um, so, you know, it's actually relatively akin to the argument that we've been having uh, around, for example, changes to the housing market. You know, when we had some of the, like, important moves, but effectively tinkering, in the government's own words, it was tilting the scale or tilting the balance uh, towards first-home buyers with, uh, you know, removing some of the tax deductibility for um, housing investors. Uh, we heard from property investors who were crying what I called at that time crocodile tears uh, because they were all of a sudden not going to be able to make as much money from something which I think never should have been a commodity in the first place. Mm. So again, all of these things are interconnected. Yeah. Um, and speaking about housing, benefit increases, recent mm. ones, upcoming ones, not only have they been criticised as far too low, mm. for a lot of people they have 
influenced their accommodation supplement negatively and for students and I can only speak anecdotally because no one's done any research into this but everyone's rents are going up by the same amount that our allowances and loans are about to go up in April next year Um, so what is a better way to do this so I in the kind of housing market that we have at the moment, uh, renters are rent takers. Uh, they do not have the kind of power that we see in other jurisdictions that have rent controls to enable a greater sense of effectively negotiation uh, and, you know, <laughs> let alone recognising housing as a human right. Uh, we have, for my entire life, for decades and decades, treated housing as a commodity in this country. And, you know, if you look at the, the human rights as recognised by the United Nations, to which, you know, New Zealand is a signatory of, housing is supposed to be a human right. Mm. Yet, you uh, you know, in the way that again, this kind of runaway narrative of what the economy is supposed to be, uh, and you know that being informed by the people who all hold the power and the wealth and whatever at any given time. Uh, ironically, in the version of the Income Tax Act that was first kind of written, uh, capital gains when you are creating income off of any form of investment, you are supposed to pay tax on it. But because, again, all of this political kind of wobbling around uh, and wedging through these issues, uh, that was the very reason that the former national government put in place the Brightline test, because it was recognised that people were not properly paying income tax or tax on the flipping of properties. Our housing crisis has moved from uh, what it was probably 10, 15 years ago of flipping properties to make quick capital gains to now hoarding properties, which means that we have a problem so pronounced that 30% of the housing stock in this country is owned by people who who own between four and more than 20 homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 30% of the population are renters. That's 1.4 million New Zealand. Statistics New Zealand tells us uh, that renters on average pay far more of their income on their living costs than those who own a home. Mm-hmm. So uh, to connect those dots of kind of people's incomes and uh, rental prices, this is something that I also heard today speaking to Michaela of OUSA uh, and again it is entirely anecdotal to this point but I've heard it from enough people now that it's, it's pretty evident that it is a trend uh, that when you have an indication that people's incomes are going to go up at scale, then all of a sudden there is able to be this increasing of rents to absorb that. Mm-hmm. You are not going to be able to enable rentiers, those are people who rent, to get ahead unless you are to instigate rent controls. And rent controls are, are something which the Greens have been trying to facilitate a meaningful discussion about inside of our parliament now for about six months, uh, so far to not much success. And I think the major reason for that uh, is because of, yeah, again, uh, the folks, the same folks who push back on, you know, more people supposedly needed to be needing to be unemployed uh, so that they get their pickings of how to exploit people. Uh, same, same with the kinds of voices that we hear when it comes to, you know, maybe decommodifying the housing market. Um, and I would just hope that renters, in particular, recognise that they are a third of this country and have a whole lot more power than those who are currently trying to 
keep rents as high as possible uh, and, you know, also really potentially dangerous without those compulsory warrants of fitness. Do you think there is a attitude amongst um, those who are setting these high rents and those who are increasing these rents and those who are saying that there is a proportion of New Zealand that is unemployable that if it is too easy, quote unquote, um, for us to stay in our jobs and for us to stay in houses that um, it's too easy for us to collectivise? I mean, yeah. (laughs) I... I mean, it's the same kind of attitude that drove, you know, union busting from the 1980s through to, like, voluntary student membership being instituted several years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would argue that, you know, the, the uh, what we're seeing in the alternate is actually that, that kind of crushing of collectivising and shared collective purpose, values, vision, etc., leaves us with a deeply individualised society where folks are operating inside the gig economy and, you know, renting and therefore unlikely to know their neighbours, unlikely to know their co-workers when you have a problem. It's not something that you therefore necessarily discuss with people who are having these shared experiences. It becomes your problem and therefore a problem with you. And we wonder why we have a mental health crisis. You know, these are systemic things which we are not collectivising on because we are continually sold solutions of individual responsibility, which ironically continues to perpetuate the very problems. Well, thank you so much, Chloe. This has been so valuable. Sorry, I'm just going to get a lot of You can find this interview and more on the Radio 1 podcasts page. To hear more from Chloe, tune into the Wednesday news here at R1. Kakite. The R1 News, weekdays at 12, 2 and 5. We'll catch up on our podcast page. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. Find more at r1.co.nz.